There's a wonderful um, solemnity that we experience when we come and are transparent before God. Because uh, really there's no place to hide. He sees who we are. And uh, as we have just sung, we have attempted to mean everything that we sang. So thank you, Steve, for really impressing that upon our hearts this morning. And I think it's good that we've begun this way because our theme for today has that need for introspection. It has uh, the need to look inside and see where we are at. Because it deals with not just where we are at, but what we are asking for. And so if we sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice, then truly, no point in saying that if we don't really love the Lord. No point really singing all that thrills my soul as Jesus, if our hearts are occupied with the thrills of this world. And I have to confess that um, I, I feel really unworthy standing here uh, to preach this message, but I have to, not because it's true in my life, but because it is true in the Word of God. And it is on that um, assurance and confidence that I come before you humbly, uh, but also knowing that uh, God really wants us to hear this this morning. Now, as part of our study into what Christians pursue, we have been looking at the pursuit of prayer. And to be specific, we have been looking at Christ's model for prayer as taught to us by our Lord in Matthew 6. So let us look once again to the text. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We have spent four sessions already studying the various petitions in this prayer. We've seen that we are to pray with reverence, hallowed be your name. We are to pray with, to, in order to relinquish, your kingdom come, your will be done. We are to pray with reliance, give us this day our daily bread. And we are to pray with repentance, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I don't know if you've noticed the beautiful transitioning from petition to petition in this prayer. It is beautiful because it just flows from one petition to the next. And each one of them, really, you can't take them apart because this is one beautiful whole. Each of the petitions are in, inextricably linked to one another. For example, how can I expect others to respect the name of my Heavenly Father... If I don't respect him by my obedience, how can his name be held in high esteem if I violate his command myself? How do we hallow his name then by submitting our will to his? Not my will, but thine be done. And then if we are submitting our will to His, if our plans are governed by His purposes, we will rely on Him to supply our needs. 
After all, what use is it to pray, your kingdom come, if we are not trusting in the provision of that kingdom? If I get married, and I am married to Brinda, does she still have to wonder whether I am going to provide for her? It's very simple. The coming of God's kingdom is meant for our provision. It is here already and therefore we can trust that we will be provided for. It's the most logical thing to pray for. To pray for divine rule is to live by divine provision. This is the prayer then that connects Divinity with humanity. It's not just theological theory. It is theologic theology put into practice. When I pray for God's name to be honored and for his kingdom to come and for his kingdom to supply my needs, I'm not chanting mindlessly some formula or mantra. I'm repeating a model that I myself am following in my life. As we have been told today, if we are following and if we love God, then we will sing with meaning and authenticity. So Christian life then is to be an embodiment of this prayer. Now when I consider the splendor and majesty of God's name, and when I am praying with my whole heart's desire for His kingdom to come, and His rule and His government to be established, and when I'm trusting in Him to provide my daily needs, I'm confronted. I'm confronted by the supreme Lord of the universe who has condescended to me to provide for me and love me. My sin is confronted. I can see my own wickedness in the light of His holiness. I can see the guilt that hangs over me in the light of His love. When I see the stunning generosity that He extends to me in grace and mercy and forgiveness, then I can't withhold that. I cannot withhold extending grace when it has shown to me in boundless measure. How can the heart from which guilt And the burden of guilt has been removed. How can such a heart now put that burden on to someone else? Let me illustrate the point by reciting to you an old hymn that I was reminded of as I was preparing. And I'm sure as I read it, some of you will be singing it in your heart. This is how it goes. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. While angels in his presence sang, until the courts of heaven rang, O the love that sought me, O the blood that bought me, O the grace that brought me to the fold, wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. He washed the bleeding sin wounds and poured in oil and wine. He whispered to assure me, I've found thee, thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. He pointed to the nail prints. For me, his blood was shed. 
A mocking crown so thorny was placed upon his head. I wondered what he saw in me to suffer such deep agony. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. When our hearts have experienced this love, when we have really come to know this grace that has been extended to us, we cannot and will not withhold it from others. And that is why we pray with repentance. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And today we will end the series, thankfully, mercifully, by examining the last couple of petitions. And they deal with praying for refuge. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And praying for God's reputation, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Just for your information, we'll be focusing on the refuge. Because the, the last petition is really a doxology. It is really a, just a cry of praise. We will touch on it, but not in as great detail as we look at praying for refuge. And then one last time, we will again consider our three questions, which we have been trying to contemplate in order to make this more um, practical for us. What does it mean to pray for refuge? What does it look like in my life? And how should this attitude inform the content of my prayer? So praying for refuge, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Charles Spurgeon sums it up really neatly when he says, The man who is really forgiven is anxious not to offend again. The man who has really been forgiven is anxious not to offend again. The possession of justification leads to an anxious desire for sanctification. Forgive us our debts, that is justification. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that is sanctification. To, re to receive pardon from sin is to seek protection from sin. I'll say that again. To receive pardon from sin is to, receive, is to seek protection from sin. Why? Because if I have received pardon, why do I need protection? What's the need for refuge? Paul states it very clearly in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Paul, you're saved. You got knocked down from your horse. You were blind for three days. Yes. But there is still evil in me. The one who wants to do good, there is still evil in me. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The sacrifice of Jesus frees me from the power of sin, but only when I reach glory will I be freed from the presence of sin. 
in the here and now, I am fighting a battle and so are you. Peter echoes Paul's sentiment when he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Why is he saying that? Because it's true. There are fleshly lusts warring within us, making war against our soul. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, but there are fleshly lusts warring in your soul. You are a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have received mercy. But there are still fleshly lusts warring in your soul. Against your soul. Just because you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light does not mean that the kingdom of darkness has stopped fighting against you. Once you have been transferred, that's when the battle starts. Now you have to fight the good fight. Now you have to beat your body to make it your slave. Now you need to not submit the members of your body to become instruments of righteousness. And that's so hard, isn't it? It's such a struggle. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. This is all happening inside you. I don't know if you've noticed it. I have. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do, so that you may not do the things that you please. Whilst we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we still have to reckon with the presence of it in our lives. If sin is present, then there is still potential to sin. If the flesh is still alive, then the ability to sin is present. The danger still lurks. We are not, we're not yet out of the woods. And that is why we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is the cry of the heart that has been saved from a deadly cancer. It recognizes the pain and the suffering and now it does not want to relapse. It's natural, right? If you've been through a terrible sickness, uh, Michelle's just been through conjunctivitis and flu in one day, one hit. Is she going to say, yeah, bring it on again? No, you're going to take steps so that it does not happen again. Sure, it may happen. But you will take steps to make sure that it doesn't. And that is what we want to see in this text today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll see that there are two parts to this petition. There's a positive and there's a negative. Do not lead us. I mean, don't do something, but deliver us. So do something. And so I want us to just focus on both the negative and the positive first, just to understand what this petition is really talking about. So do not lead us into temptation, the first part. Now that seems on the face of it a very strange thing to, to ask for. Don't lead us into temptation. Because if I'm asking you not to do something, then the implication is that you are doing it. If you ask your kids not to misbehave, then uh, the implication is that they are misbehaving. 
If Brinda asks me not to be late from work, then the implication is that I can be late for work. So if I'm praying for God not to lead me into sin, does he lead me into temptation? Is that true, that God leads us into temptation? What does James say? Let no one, when he is, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say that. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James 1.13 But actually he opens his letter, James does, when he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Verses 2 and 3. And then in verse 12 of the same chapter, he said, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. So if God doesn't tempt anyone, then how am I falling into diverse temptations? That doesn't make sense. And if God does not tempt anyone, then why am I expected to endure it? Well, we need to understand that the word temptation in this prayer and in James is not referring to an enticement or a seduction to sin, but a trial or a testing to prove your integrity. It is a test. And with that test may come opportunity to sin, but the test itself is devoid of any, any moral value. It is a testing ground, it is an exam. You are in a laboratory. And you have been placed in a situation that is now going to test your character and your integrity and your fidelity. So to be absolutely clear, God never seduces us with sin. He never baits us. He never tries to seduce us and tantalize us and trap us. He wants to use the test for good. To refine us. Isn't that God's way all the time? Abraham was tested. Sacrifice your son. And when he's about to sacrifice his son, what does the angel of the Lord say to him? Now I know that you fear God. You passed. Israel was tested. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? What's the reason? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would follow his commandments or not. Deuteronomy 8.2 Proverbs 17.3 The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. 1 Peter 1.6.7 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing to understand here is that God does not tempt us to sin. But he does test us to prove us and to perfect us and to refine us. Listen to the words of J.R. Miller. And I quote, Testing always implies the possibility of failure. There is no experience in which we may not sin. There is a wrong alternative in every call to that which is right. Instead of doing the duty, we may neglect it. 
Instead of making the self-denial or sacrifice, we may decline it. Instead of resisting the sin, we may yield to it. Temptation always brings an opportunity to overcome, to grow stronger. But if we fail to use the opportunity, we sin. Unquote. It was the father who took Jesus into the wilderness, didn't he? Did he take him there to tempt him? No. He took him there to test him. So that he could demonstrate his worthiness to be our savior and our redeemer. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why? For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. And then again in 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet, yet without sin. Do you remember Job? And all the afflictions and all the trials. And you know, that wasn't a temptation. It was a trial. It was a testing. God says, yes, Satan, do whatever you want. Just don't take his life. And he's afflicted with souls and his family is killed. And his property is destroyed. And everything that he has is is reduced to nothing. And he's sitting in the ash heap. And his wife says, curse God and die. But what does... Scriptures tell us, in all this, Job did not sin. In all of this, Job did not sin. If God allows his own son to be tested, and if he wants us to be conformed to the image of that son, then we should expect to be tested. We should remember that God only ever tests us for good, but oftentimes Satan will turn those tests into trials into opportunities for doing evil. So then when we understand that this petition stems from a deep desire never to compromise the glory of God owing to a lack of personal integrity, then we will pray, Lord, keep me, keep me from those situations where failure to overcome would result in bringing shame to your name. That's the prayer. Nevertheless, if it is your will for me to go through this furnace, then I will. We pray like Jesus, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So then this is a petition, really, that is distressed at the very thought of offending God. Not because he's going to be angry with us, not because he's going to take away our salvation, but because of his great love for us, and now we can't respond by doing, why am I doing this? We want to honor Him. We want to love Him. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And so this is a prayer out of deep distress saying, Lord, you know, I know my weakness. Just don't take me where I will stumble. But I want to dig a little deeper into the fundamental presumption that undergirds this petition. This, there's, a, there's a very fundamental assumption here at play. And the assumption is, 
that we have ordered our lives in such a manner that we are walking with God. That we are doing everything that is humanly possible to do to keep ourselves far from temptation. Someone put it this way, it is hard to pick forbidden fruit if you are a hundred yards away, but it is easy if you are at arm's length. As people who have experienced the power of sin, as people who have experienced the ability of sin to hold us in bondage and captivity, are we making life choices that take us farther away from sin, or are we making life choices that bring us closer to it? Are we mapping out our journeys to keep us from the paths of temptation, Or is our navigation taking us closer and closer and closer to the edge? How particular are you about not sinning? How fastidious are you in avoiding temptation? When you plan for the future, are you budgeting for temptation? So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, it presumes that we have made holiness a priority in our lives. No point praying, lead me not into into temptation, if I'm going there anyway. So often we pray, lead us not into, into temptation, when actually what we really mean is, Lord, I want to drive as close to the edge as possible, just don't let me fall off. Lord, I want to flirt with the enemy, just don't let me be overcome by him. The Christian life is not about walking as close to the edge as possible, it is about walking in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.1 Does the Spirit encourage you to walk close to the edge? Does he say, go on, have a flirt with danger? No. He says, flee temptation, don't flirt with it, don't analyze it, don't try to break it down, run, flee. Someone has said, when you flee temptation, be sure you don't leave a forwarding address. Very wise. Think of it this way, why do people buy expensive sunscreen? It's pretty expensive, I I reckon. To keep them safe from skin cancer. Why do people install fire alarms to protect themselves in the fire? Why do people take out travel insurance in case something happens on a trip? The point being that it is expected that people will take wise decisions about their physical well-being. And yet, we have so many Christians who who pay no attention to their spiritual well-being by their decision-making. There seems to be a foolhardy willingness to take risks because I want, to, I want to experience the thrill of how far can I push it. Perhaps it's being overconfident of your strength. Or perhaps it's, being, it's, it's miscalculating the extent of the danger. Let me remind you of Paul's warning to the Corinthian church. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
Don't overestimate your ability to overcome temptation. And don't underestimate sin's ability to make you fall. That's what Jesus is teaching us through this petition. Now let's look at the second part. Deliver us from evil. When you have, when you have organized your life to minimize the opportunities for temptation to come near you, when, when you are walking not, to the, not near the edge but far from it, and when you are acutely aware of your own weaknesses and the power of sin, then when trials come, you know this wasn't your doing. This is the Lord's doing. You have made every effort to walk humbly and soberly and in a godly manner, but the, the trial comes. And then you can take rest in a text like 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Even though, even though the test seems like it's going to swallow you and overwhelm you, and just completely reduce you to nothing. Be assured that if God has sent that trial, He will give you the strength to stand. Make no mistake, when God says He will provide a way of escape, He's not saying, I'm going to take the trial away. He's not saying, I'm going to let you bypass the trial. He'll say, I'm going to make you go through it. And you will go through it, and you will come out the other side. Because God will not tempt you beyond what you are able. You know, deliver. That, that word means to, to snatch or to draw uh, oneself and, and invariably refers to a snatching away from danger. It has the idea of a wounded soldier in a battlefield and he cries out for help and his, one of his comrades comes and he literally carries him on his shoulder and rushes him off. That's the sense. There's a great sense of urgency. There's a great sense of danger. There's risk. And that's the, that's the intent when we pray, deliver us from evil. That is, that is the urgency with which we pray. So to ask for deliverance is not to ask for the situation to go away. Rather, it is to ask to be brought through the situation safely. This is a prayer for safe passage. I mean, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You know the story. They've been taken into a captivity, but they don't forget God's law. They order their lives. Holiness is a priority for them. Even down to their meals, to their diet. Yes, we know that you've given all, us all this great food, but we just want to be vegetarian. We just want to keep are God's law, if that's okay with you. And fine. The, the master, he, he allows them to do that. And so they're not, they're not walking close to the edge. They're walking in the spirit. They're walking according to God's leading. And then one day, the king says, I'm going to make a, um, a statue, and everyone has to bow down to it. 
And if you don't bow down to it, then you're going to be cast into the fire. And these guys say, yeah. They weren't going to compromise with the culture. And obviously, you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar is furious and he orders for the furnace to be heated to more than seven times its normal intensity. But the men are unfazed. And you know why? Because it's not Nebuchadnezzar's fire. It is the Lord's fire. And if he has prepared this for them, then he will take them through it. What is the response? Oh king, you know, we don't have to listen. We don't have to listen to you. We don't have to talk to you about this. But, you know, our God is able to take us through this. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And so they chucked in. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men. And they're loosed. And they're walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of a god. That is what it means to hallow the name of God. That is what it means to trust in His kingdom and His provision. And that is what it means to rely on Him. So that when the time of testing comes, when you have lived your life, when you have done everything that you can to walk the straight and narrow, when the furnace comes, you can go through it and you will say, I will not fear. Are you in the midst of great trial and suffering? Are you fearful that the pressure will make you crack? Are you concerned that you will not be able to handle the strain? Be encouraged because He will provide a way of escape. As Jude says in verse 24, He is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of glory, blameless, with great joy. We don't shy away from the trial. We don't fear entering the fray. We don't back away, but we don't pretend that we can win ourselves. We are confident, but not in ourselves. We walk by faith and not by sight. And I believe that that's what's been Steve's uh, theme in the bulletin today, if you open it up. When things get you down, don't look down, look up. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why? Why? Why should you consider Him? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the thing with, with trials and temptations, isn't it? I mean, when, 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 we, when we've done everything that we can and we, we're trying to live as best we can. And we're trying our very level best to walk that holy path and to be godly and to walk humbly. And trials come and then, you know, what's the point? It's all for nothing, right? 
That is why we need to look at Christ. Because He lived a sinless and blameless life, and yet He was a man of sorrows. Yet He was bruised for our iniquities. Yet He suffered. Blameless, sinless, spotless. He's not walking near the edge. I have come to do my my father's will and what my father tells me to do, I do. And what he tells me to say, I say. He endured the trials. Why? For the joy set before him. If you're at the point where it's all becoming too hard, you know, just listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Why? For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. It's so important. It's so important that we recognize the importance of trials from an eternal perspective. So vital. The problem isn't really the affliction. The problem isn't really, you know, the extent or the scariness of the situation. It's the evil that has potential for coming out of it. Every affliction, every trial has the potential for evil and that is what we are seeking deliverance from. What does Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I'm not saying take them out of the world. But keep them from the evil one. John 17. We have to live in the world. God has placed us here for His purposes and His plans but we don't Asked to be delivered from where God has placed us. Rather, we ask to be prayed, we, we ask to be delivered from the evil that can result. Let me read to you just Ephesians 6 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Will you be strong? And in the strength of His might. Not your might. Don't take any confidence in the flesh. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. You need to be doing that. This is war. You cannot walk as if though there isn't a war. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Is this a trifle? Is this something that you can handle just like that? Take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day. When trial comes, when temptation comes, You are not found armorless. You are ready 
for battle. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, you've done everything. You've lived the life, you've walked the straight and narrow, put on the armor in the evil day, and having done everything, you will be able to stand. Make no mistake, God wants us to stand up against evil. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Ephesians 5.11 The call of the Christian life is to take a stand against evil. Against everything that is opposed to the truth of God, everything that is standing against the establishment of His kingdom, everything that wants to, to undo His work. So deliver us from evil isn't a petition that comes from a place of gutlessness and cold feet. It comes from a place of strength and confidence in Christ, our captain. If you don't have confidence in your captain, you will not be able to stand. If your captain has delivered you and you have experienced the victory that he has given, you will have confidence in him. But if you have not yet experienced his power, his deliverance, his redemption, you will not have confidence. J.R. Miller again has some wonderful words of encouragement for us. When we, when we come to that position, when we, when we come to that situation of trial, he says, it is possible for us to live as it were with our feet in the mire of sin's bitterness. It is possible. Our life smitten meanwhile by fierce temptations and yet yields the fruits of love and holiness. If we have Christ in us, there is a magic power in our life which rejects the evil and assimilates the good. Which takes the evil and transforms it. The world has no power to harm us if our life is hid in Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful assurance. So how can we tie all of this together? What is, what is praying for refuge all about? How do we make this more practical for us? What does it mean to pray for refuge? It means praying that God would give us the strength to persevere through the trials that He sends us so that our character would be tested and proven and refined. We don't say, Lord, don't give me the trial. We just say, Lord, help me go through it. So that we would not give in to evil, but that we would be protected from its influence. What does this look like in our lives? It looks like a commitment to living watchfully on guard. It looks like living fearlessly in the face of affliction. We do not back down. It looks like living in the hope that God will work something eternally glorious through our affliction. Whatever the sickness, whatever the hardship, whatever the struggle... It is not meaningless. We may not understand it. We may not recognize why and what God wants to do with it, but He will. It is working an eternal weight of glory. 
How should this attitude inform the content of my prayer? Pray for wisdom to make life choices that keep you far from temptation. I can't look into the future. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just living, trying to live day by day. I used to try to plan, but I don't always have wisdom. I can't see what's going on in the future, but God can. And so we, we submit our plans to Him. That is why we say, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Yes, I'm making my plans. Yes, I've got a whole list of things that I want to do. But Lord, what do you want to do? Pray that you would embrace trials as a means to have your character proven by God. And that you would not be dejected in times of affliction and that you would not shrink from standing against evil. It's very hard. Evil is strong. Evil is powerful. But greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. And lastly, we come to praying for God's reputation. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. And a lot of scholars agree that um, this doxology wasn't included in the, in the original text. And I have no problem with agreeing with that. Because the doxology is still true. His kingdom is forever. His power is forever. His glory is forever. And so this is just summing up. It's summing up everything that, that we have been doing. I mean, we've been praying for God's name to be hallowed. And we've been praying for His kingdom to be established. And we trust Him for our provision. And we trust Him for our forgiveness. And we are trusting Him for deliverance. And so we say just, Amen, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've come to you, I've prayed all these things, because the kingdom is yours. The power is yours. The glory is yours. Where else am I going to go? So we begin with a concern for God's reputation and that's where we end. A fitting conclusion. I hope this series has been as challenging and encouraging for you as it has been for me. And I hope that as you learn to structure your prayer life according to this model, that you would also structure your daily life according to this model. That you would hallow not out of a sense of grudging, you know, drudgery, but out of love. We sang all about it today. I love you, Lord. And that is why I lift my voice. Hallowing God's name is about having that, that lifestyle of worship. And that makes it easy then, because once, we've, once we're already living the life, then we don't have a problem for His will to be done. No matter how hard the trial, no matter how hard the affliction, we know that He has put it there for a purpose. And so we pray, your will be done. And if we are trusting in His kingdom and we are waiting for Him to be the king, we are waiting for the king to be crowned, why won't I trust Him to provide as His subject? He is a good king. He is a faithful king. He will provide all our physical needs, all our spiritual needs, all the forgiveness that we need. You know, I, w I was so convicted this morning, seeing him, because like Steve said, we're going to mean these things, right? And if we're not meaning these things, then we're just singing in the air, just like that. I mean, uh, we just might as well just go blah, 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 blah. 
But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a great God. And so I, I, my, my prayer is that you would, you would make this prayer, this petition yours, as, as a sacrifice, as an offering back to your King. Shall we pray? Gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you for your word which is so rich in truth. Lord, which has so much application for our lives. Father, we do not need to look to the left or to the right. We do not need to look to man. We do not need to look to earthly wisdom and ideology and philosophy. Lord, we just need to look at your word because it is true, because it is alive. And so, Father, we pray that the life that your word has would, Lord, be planted in us and would just blossom. Lord, leading us in the path that we should walk, showing us where we should go, how we should conduct ourselves. And Lord, even though we should walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear evil. Father, we want to thank you that you walk with us. We want to thank you, Lord, that you put us through the trials, not to tempt us, not so that we can fall, not to laugh, but, Lord, to strengthen, to prove our character. And so, Father, we pray that as we go through trials, as we go through afflictions, Lord, that you would help us to stand, that you would help us, Lord, to look to Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the suffering and the shame because of the glory that was to come. And that glory is ours. For we are co-inheritors with Christ. And we are being transformed daily into the image of who He is. And so, Father, we just pray that this hope that we have would help us to stand, despite the furnace, despite the affliction, despite whatever you choose to put in our way. And having stood steadfast, Father, we just pray that we would hallow your name and bless you and glorify you. We ask all this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.